You know, if Bernie Sanders never said he was a democratic socialist, based on what he's saying, people wouldn't be calling him a democratic socialist. That's how he characterizes himself in sort of European terms, the democratic socialist parties in, in Europe. But, but why is she but, having trouble? Well, I, I think that, that Bernie is speaking to a yearning that is deep and real, and he has credibility on it. And that is the absolute enormous concentration of wealth in a small group of people with the middle class now being able to be shown being left out. There used to be a basic bargain. If you contributed to the profitability of an enterprise, you got to share in the profit. That's been broken. Productivity's up, wages are but stagnant. But Hillary's talking about that as well. well. It's, but it's, it's, it's relatively new for Hillary to talk about that. Hillary's focus has been on other things up to now, and that's been Bernie's, uh, no one questions Bernie's authenticity on those issues. It's been one week since this race came down to Bernie versus Biden. And we're already seeing how Donald Trump would run to the left of Biden on issues like criminal justice, trade, and protecting Social Security and Medicare. Joe Biden has left himself wide open to attacks on all of these and more, given his 48-year career as a deficit hawk, tough-on-crime, corporate Democrat. For instance, you may have noticed that Trump has lately been selling himself as a criminal justice reformer. Trump of Jail the Homeless fame recently hosted Kim Kardashian West in the Oval Office as part of a media push celebrating his release of three female prisoners. He bragged in a State of the Union address about passing legislation to overhaul the federal criminal justice system. Our roaring economy has, for the first time ever, given many former prisoners the ability to get a great job and a fresh start. This second chance at life is made possible because we passed landmark criminal justice reform into law. Everybody said that criminal justice reform couldn't be done, but I got it done and the people in this room got it done. So get ready to hear Donald Central Park Five Trump hitting Joe Biden as the author of the draconian 1994 crime bill. On trade, Biden's vulnerabilities are just as glaring. Trump will pitch himself as the defender of American manufacturing, a president willing to wage a trade war with China on behalf of the American worker. And he will paint Biden as a consummate DC insider who sold out the workers of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania by way of NAFTA and PNTR with China. And Social Security? <laughs> oh boy, Social Security. Just last week, Trump tweeted, quote, I will protect your Social Security and Medicare just as I have for the past three years. Sleepy Joe Biden will destroy both in very short order. Now, it doesn't really matter that literally Hours before that tweet, Trump told a Fox News town hall that he would absolutely cut Social Security and Medicare during his second term. If you don't cut something in entitlements, you'll never really deal with that. We'll be cutting, but we're also going to have growth like you've never had before. Trump has zero problem talking out of both sides of his mouth. Remember in 2016 when he simultaneously ran as an aggressive foreign policy hawk and an isolationist? His strategy is simply to repeat a basic point over and over while shamelessly denouncing those who call him on his hypocrisy until many voters absorb the message. 
And the point Trump will repeat ad nauseum is that throughout his long career, Joe Biden has sought to cut or restrict Social Security and Medicare. And on this score, Trump will be right. Until not too long ago, Biden himself would brag about trying to cut the so-called third rail of entitlements. When I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans benefits. I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth time. He sold himself as a politician willing to take the hard stance of reducing deficits by going after health care for seniors and the impoverished. And never mind if a foreign invasion or two adds $5 trillion to the national debt. By contrast, Bernie Sanders might as well have been made in a lab to stand up to Trump's disingenuous tactics. To see what I mean, watch what happened when Bernie Sanders debated Republican Ted Cruz on Obamacare, a.k.a. the Affordable Care Act. 2008, the 10 largest insurance companies in America made just over $8 billion profit. In 2016, 2015 rather, those same 10 largest companies made $15 billion in profit. Insurance company profits have doubled under Obamacare. That was the result. Bernie helped write Obamacare. I don't think the federal government ought to be passing a law that doubles insurance company profits. And while those profits were doubling, what happened to the average American family? The average American family, your premiums have gone up $5,462. At the same time, the average deductible has gone up $5,000. For families that are struggling, you're getting less coverage, you're paying more for it, and your deductibles are higher. And you know who's making out like gangbusters? The insurance companies and those in government whose solution is let's have even more government control. Senator, this thing isn't working. You know, Senator Sanders. I find myself in agreement with Ted. He's right. The function of insurance companies is not to provide quality health care to all people, to make as much money as they possibly can. Ted, let's work together on a Medicare for all single payer program. <laughs> so we're finally going to get insurance companies, private insurance companies out of our lives. Bernie doesn't try to deny that the Affordable Care Act had flaws. He doesn't have to run away from his long held views. He acknowledges Cruz's point and then goes beyond it to explain why his own proposals are the real lasting solution. And he's able to do that because as everyone who follows politics ought to know by now, Bernie Sanders is the most consistent and consistently right leader in the country. Trump can't run to Bernie's left on issues on which the country increasingly agrees, like guaranteeing health care to all or standing up for workers over Fortune 500 companies. Why? Because Bernie is uniquely equipped to point out that Trump is a fraud. Because over a long career, Bernie has always, always been the real deal. Voters, I cannot emphasize this enough. If you nominate Joe Biden against Donald Trump, we could very likely lose. Consider what four more years of Donald Trump means for this country. The time lost on climate action, the Supreme Court appointments, the fact that Trump emerging from impeachment more popular than ever will ride roughshod over what remains of our legal and civil norms. Please don't make the mistake of choosing a paper tiger who will crumple in the face of Trump's onslaught. 
Back the man who everyone, even if they disagree with him, recognizes as an authentic fighter for what he believes. Back Bernie. This is Here to Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics driving the Bernie 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from campaign headquarters in Washington, D.C. This week, I sat down with Matt Brunig, the founding wonk of the People's Policy Project, the first crowdfunded think tank in the country. Few people understand the details of Bernie's Medicare for All plan better than Matt. And I wanted to ask him how it stacks up against Joe Biden's healthcare plan. Given that Joe's entire pitch is electability, what even are his proposals anyway? Maybe instead of debating Medicare for All for the 12th time in next week's debate, the moderators might grill Joe on what he'd actually do in office. But then they do accuse us Sanders supporters of hoping for pie-in-the-sky impossibilities. In any case, enjoy my conversation with Matt. So it is an incredible joy to be joined today by Matt Brunig of the People's Policy Project, which is one of the most, I think, important and kind of inspiring moments on the left in terms of policy creation. Can you tell us a little bit about what the People's Policy Project is and how it came to be? Yeah, the People's Policy Project is a crowdfunded think tank. I guess we now say small donor funded think tank. It's the only think tank like that in the country that I'm aware of. Every other think tank relies on donations from high net worth individuals, very rich people, or foundations, foreign governments, uh, companies on down the line. We're the only one where you can go on Patreon or ActBlue and give five, ten, fifteen dollars a month and no other money sources coming in, which gives us the freedom to just go, you know, as hard as we want to go, no compromise, and not having to navigate stakeholders. What if I upset this donor or whatever? So we started in 2017. It was kind of started after the 2016 campaign. Bernie struggled to get help from other think tanks. Mm. And that is an important part of, it's not that, that important. Obviously, he did pretty well without much help. But the media wants some kind of validation on certain ideas, and the other think tanks don't won't help Bernie. They won't help other left of center candidates, like really left candidates. And so the idea was, well, we could fill this gap. These policies are actually pretty reasonable, and they exist in other countries, so it shouldn't be that hard to piece it together. They want it beautifully presented, get it in the white paper, get some videos, make it look professional, <laughs> and and then that'll convince them that these are at least viable ideas as, as a technical matter, separate question, political, you know. Right. Well, I want to get to both of those lanes in a second, but I think it's interesting to think about the fact that it's kind of taken for granted that think tanks and other kind of academic or a- academically oriented bodies like that are going to be neutral. And there isn't a political component when you look at who was funding them. Yeah. And we saw this a little bit earlier this year when there was a, the McCater study that was a funded by a conservative, shall we say, sure, yeah. sometimes c- called right wing, <laughs> right wing yeah, yeah. think tank, um, that actually 
inadvertently found that there were enormous savings with Medicare for all. Yeah. Um, and that was a moment in which the the conservatism of the think tank, the, the political nature of the think tank became news. But yeah. generally speaking, there is this presumption that they're all neutral. Yeah, absolutely. And Mercatus is a, is, a, is a really good example of this, not only because, of course, it's like, what is Mercatus? What, what does that even mean? Yeah. Is that, are we talking about latitude and longitude? I don't even know. <laughs> it just seems like a thing. Is that a guy... But worse than that, it is housed, quote unquote, at George Mason University, mm -hmm. which is a public university mm -hmm. in Virginia. And we actually tried to figure out how this relationship worked after they released this campaign or released this study showing that Medicare for All saved money. And because we figured, well, if they're a public, this is a public university, they should be subject to state FOIA laws, we could start getting emails, like, let's see what happened. Because what happened in that specific instance is they released a study, they're trying to show, you know, Medicare for all costs $30 trillion or whatever. And as, as anyone who's followed this knows, that's, you know, how much more the federal government spends is not how much more you will spend and not how much more the nation spends. Right. If you look at how much more the nation spends, they actually spend less. Right. Even though we're covering everyone dental vision, drugs, all the, the whole nine yards. And so you got to, you had to pull that out of their tables and be like, oh, I got you. Actually, you showed it, it spent less. And there was a full scale freak out. It seemed like from them, they started calling up fact checkers. You need to say this is false. They started running Facebook ads. Really? Yeah. Facebook ads specifically like, you know, in response to this, I, I got some of them screenshot and whatever. And so I, I actually want to try to figure out how does this you know, let's get some FOIA going, see if we can get some info. When you contact the university, they say, well, they're not actually part of the university. They just contract with us and et cetera, et cetera. So what they, what they do in that case is so egregious is they try to use public George Mason University. This is an academic institution to shield themselves. But then actually it's just a private company. They probably pay the university a few million dollars a year get that branding, get some office space, whatever. And so a lot of that kind of deception happens. That, that's not the only one that works like that. There are a number of ones that operate at universities like that. Mm. And and you'll see it reported as like the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. It's like no one at GMU has any relationship to this. See, that's fascinating, especially in this universe we're in where people have said that they want big structural change, right? They have said that they are frustrated by the status quo. And yet, for some reason, we're in the middle of a media cycle right now where the idea of evoking an establishment yeah. is like somehow to be overly conspiratorial or out of touch with reality. You hear an example like this you, and, and see how pervasive this kind of, I mean, I mean, I feel like I'm afraid to use the word rigged because people have made well, it poisonous I online, but... There's this bias, shall we sure. say, an institutional bias toward yeah. institutions, powerful institutions. Yeah. This is a whole, when we're talking about the establishment, we're talking about imbalances of power. And this is such a crucial example. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, anyone who lives in D.C. and operates in these circles understands different vectors of power, different vector like institutions, whether it's the top think tanks, whether it's the top lobbying firms, and whether it's, you know, certain members of Congress, right. and people move back and forth between, you know, there's a there's a, a class of people, if you will, just like in any industry, perhaps. Uh, when I was uh, a practicing lawyer, we had similar kinds of things in, in labor law. Of course, labor law is good. Unions are good. So it's a different kind of thing. But of course, you know, people moving between this union or that union or this labor side law firm, right? And they're all connected and they yeah. know each other. It was the same thing in politics. And Bernie is on the outs, 
with that circle uh, in the same way that you could get in the outs of any other sort of elite crust of a kind of industry. So your commentary and your think tanks, you know, white papers and research on the major policy issues of the day, including Medicare for all, have injected a lot of clarity into the conversation that doesn't always exist because so much of the conversation is controlled by, you know, big pharma, uh, anti-Medicare for all lobbying groups, the commercials that you see, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there isn't always that clear distinction between what's a paid for article and what's a paid ad and what is genuine. So I want to get into that a little bit, if, if we may. We're recording this the night after Super Tuesday, and it has become clear that this is a two-person race between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. And I think this is a real opportunity for us to start getting more specific in a way that was difficult when there were so many people on the stage and people who actually had more policy offerings to contend with. Um, Now that it's just Joe Biden, I think it's time for him to come under scrutiny about what his policy objectives are and how... And basically what they aren't. Right, right. For those who aren't familiar, and that's, I think, damning damning in and of itself, that we've gotten this far and so many of us don't even know what Joe Biden is offering as a solution to health care. What is Joe Biden's health care plan? Yeah, so his plan, uh, you know, it's somewhat brief on the website, but the basic gist of it is think about all the populations we have in the healthcare system right now. We've got the Medicaid population, mm-hmm. which is mostly low income. Uh, we've got Medicare, mostly elderly, some disabled. Uh, then we've got uh, people on their employer plans, right? And then we've got people on the individual exchanges. That's like the four uh, things. So the first thing he tries to do is he says, well, because a lot of states didn't expand Medicaid, there's this group of people who are kind of in limbo. They're not eligible for Medicaid. They also can't really get on the individual exchanges because they weirdly don't make enough money to get on the individual. So we're going to have a specific targeted program just for that group of people who are who are above the Medicaid income threshold, but below the individual exchange threshold. So like, let's plug that gap. Then the second thing he wants to do is make the individual exchange subsidies more generous. Mm-hmm. There's only like 11 million people on the exchanges, and that's been declining year after year after year. The exchanges for better or worse, kind of a kind of a policy well, failure. Let's, um, can we just unpack a little bit what yeah. exactly the exchanges are and what they were supposed to assist with? Yeah, so the exchanges are in some ways very similar to his plugging the gap with Medicaid thing. If you're not on Medicaid, you're not on Medicare, you don't get it from your employer, then what do you do? You're an individual. It's very hard to get individual insurance. That's why everyone does these group-based plans. It's very hard to get, you know, your risk profile, et cetera. So these so, are people who are make too much money for Medicaid, who are too young for Medicare and or aren't disabled. Right. And also don't make enough money to buy private insurance. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, basically. Or people who, even if you make a lot of money, private insurance can be extremely expensive as an individual mm. because there's no risk pool. Mm-hmm. It's just you as an individual. And what if you have bad health or whatever? And so the idea was, well, we'll kind of create this exchange system and people can go on the exchanges and they can buy plans. If you're not on Medicaid, you make too much money. You're not on Medicare because you're not old enough or you're not disabled and you can't get employer-based care. You're going to go on the exchanges. That's the idea. And 
you know, it provides subsidies to people who have income below 400% of the federal poverty line, which for an individual is maybe 50,000 or, or less. If you're over that amount, you don't get any subsidy. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you could be paying for a family plan, $15,000 a year or something like that, which, you know, if you're making a hundred K a year, it's, it's still uh, very difficult <laughs> to pull off, especially after tax and all the rest of it. That was the idea of the exchanges. And at first they thought 20, 30 million people are going to sign up to this. I think it maxed out at 11 million. I think it's now declined now below 10 million. And is that an issue um, for the size of the risk pool and the cost of the program? Uh, it could be. I mean, I think it's such a small thing at this point that it kind of doesn't matter, I guess. Mm. Some insurers have backed out, but they, they are, they do make profits off of it. And the federal government has, for people who are below 400% of the federal poverty line, open-ended subsidies. So if you're an insurer, you can kind of charge whatever you need to charge and the government will make up the difference, make sure you're profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and very few people who are over 400% of the federal poverty line, very few unsubsidized people actually sign up because it's so expensive. So, you know, Joe's going to come in and fix this. Let's get rid of that 400% cap and say no one will pay more than 8.5% of their income. Um, and let's make the subsidies more generous. That's his plan there. Then there's this completely unspecified uh, part of the plan, which is just public option. There's no, what does the public option look like? What is it going to cover? What's the, what's the deductible going to, no, it's just, there'll be a public plan and it'll be in these markets. Okay. Right. The wildest thing to me about this plan, I mean, we can go into why that the design, those designs are not good, but like the part where it feels like everyone should be able to agree on this is he does not insure everyone. Right. 3% of the population. This is in his own plan, his own text. He's, this is, you know, not me. He says this, his campaign says this. 3% of the population will not be insured. That's somewhere in the realm of 10, 11 million people. And if you do the kind of math on, you know, excess mortality from uninsurance, it's something like for every 800 uninsured people, you get one extra death, like unnecessary death each year. That's like the elasticity that they use for these kinds of things. So if you've ever seen people say like, Trump care is going to kill 20,000 more people a year. That's what they do. Okay. They take that number. They go, oh, divide the uninsured by 800 and then you get it. Mm. If you do that for him, it's in the realm of – I did the math on people's policy project and I did it in a 10-year window. You know, everyone loves the t- – Yeah, right. It's 125,000 excess deaths over 10 years just due to that uninsurance. Um, and that's not counting under insurance yeah. and all the rest of it. It's like that, you know, even Pete Buttigieg covers everyone, right. you know, right. even, I mean, actually, I don't know what Amy's plan uh, was, but <laughs> Warren covers everyone. Bernie covers everyone. Yeah. Even Pete covered everyone. I think Kamala covered everyone. You know, uh, Biden's the only guy in the race who says, no, we're still going to have 10 million uninsured people, tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths a year. Okay, so the moral stakes of that are pretty clear. Um, And I think one of the most compelling parts of the Bernie campaign is that everything is for all, that we don't think that in an ethical society, you can design, you should design a plan that is going to allow people to die simply because they can't afford health insurance. But there's also this issue of the political utility of it. So it seems like Joe Biden's plan, and correct me if I'm wrong, is still vulnerable in the ways that um, the ACA was vulnerable to some of the political critiques. And so what I'm thinking of is this moment following the 2016 election when Bernie Sanders debated Ted Cruz at this healthcare debate. And you could tell that Ted Cruz was rearing up 
to be kind of Mr. Debate Club. He was like really ready to go. He thought he had all the points about why the ACA was flawed. And he gives his opening salvo and Bernie just comes up and it's his turn and goes, you know what, Ted, you're right. Mm -hmm. Premiums have gone up. There are these problems. That's why I hope we can join together and work toward a Medicare for all system that gets around all of those. Sure. Yeah. Is it true to say, is it accurate to say that Joe Biden's plan has some of those same vulnerabilities? Yeah. I mean, he's not going to get costs under control. That's for sure. Um, I don't know any of the plans except for Bernie's and Warren's, which obviously are, are similar in some respects, different in others, that try to control costs on the provider side. And if you don't do that, guess what? Premiums are going to go up every year. Co-payments are going to go up every year. Like Until you get that under control, you're not going to solve that problem. And if premiums go up, guess what? Your wages are not going to go up because your employer is going to have to take more of their money and use it to buy your insurance. So all, all the same kind of cost bloat problems that have really immiserated people. I mean, we're spending an extra 8% of GDP on healthcare each year than similar countries that cover everyone. And that, that's, a, that's a huge amount of money. We're talking about, what's that? That's like 1.6 trillion. You know, that could be money for anything you want to do with it, you know, uh, go on vacation, pay for college, uh, whatever. I think it, it's still, even people who support Senator Sanders, it can be kind of difficult to wrap your mind around how you're able to save money insuring everyone. And you see the numbers and you see the 32 trillion over 10 years and you you understand, you know, I think that that the, the idea of one, how we get that number, how we get it, that we actually have savings through administrative savings, through negotiating drug prices. And I, I'd love you to talk about that stuff in more detail. Um, but also the difference between the shift of who is paying that cost mm. and how it is that it is doable to shift the the burden of those premiums, deductibles, co-pays from individuals to the government. Right. Okay. So the reason why you can bring costs down is because the there, there are basically three areas, or maybe two areas, depending on how you know. You got one. You're able to bring down the unit price, so drug prices go down. Like a pill is going to be, you know, fifty cents on the dollar of what it used to be. That'll still be very profitable for drug companies. I mean, not very profitable, but reasonably profitable. And that this happens what, just because the government is able to negotiate prices. They can negotiate prices. I mean, you look at the way Medicare sets prices for traditional Medicare right now. The uh, center, the CMS, they, once a year, they basically publish something in the federal register and says, this is what we're paying for. Mm-hmm. Here's the whole list of everything you can do, knees, cancer, whatever. This is the price. Take it or leave it. And of course, people take it because there's 50, whatever, you know, 50 million odd people on Medicare, right? And so at that point, when you when you have that level of power, you just, you basically can dictate the price. So it's, um, that's fascinating because there's this kind of th- perception, I think, that this is market, that the prices of drugs are market driven, that, you know, everyone, you know, we're capitalists and so many of the people who have aligned with Joe Biden right now, the candidates have dropped off in line with him, have really trumpeted that they're capitalists and they support markets. But what's happening, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the drug prices are just being set by the drug companies, yes. more or less. No, drug, drug prices are, to say drug prices are set in a market is uh, is uh, just, it's just wrong, right? So drugs are patented. Mm-hmm. That's the key. Patents are government-issued uh, power to basically exclude everyone else from creating that drug. Some of these drugs that they're charging $10,000 for 
You can make it at a dollar a pill, $2 a pill, but they have patents. And so they can kind of charge whatever they want to charge, especially if this is a drug that can save people's lives and so on. And so I think it's useful to kind of take a step back and say, look, the drug pricing is already a kind of state-driven, state-sanctioned sort of thing, right? right? We give them the patent that allows them to set that price. We need to be more active about being like, well, look, we want to make sure that you have enough money coming in to cover your costs, some extra so you can do some research and development. We like that. But you can't just charge whatever you want. And so this process we have now where it's just, here's a patent, do whatever you want, charge whatever you want. No, 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 right? Right. We're not going to give you a patent and let you do that anymore. Right. It's got to be negotiated. It's got to be reasonable. And that seems like that is that is a far more like, um, I don't know, logical, almost like conservative approach right. uh, to this uh, process. There's no way to get the government out of the question of drug prices because they're, they're already the one driving it with patents. Okay. So, yeah, so you want to bring the prices down. Other countries pay, obviously, a fraction of what we pay. The only arguments people make against bringing the prices down is, well, if they can't make these massive surplus profits, then how are they going to do research and development? One, they can still do research and development as long as they make a reasonable profit. And two, the U.S. government already funds a large share of drug research anyway right. through the NIH. So you could just bump that up and you know, you're good to go. Right. So. so that's part of the point that Bernie is always making when he points to the profit of the pharmaceutical industry. It's not this random untethered attack on the accumulation of wealth per se. It's just, I mean, that's arguably part of it for other reasons, the, yeah, the yeah. influence of extreme wealth in our democracy, et cetera, et cetera, as we've seen with Bloomberg and Tom Steyer. But the a crucial component of it is that even if you think that people should be able to earn what they're going to earn with no ceiling and that there's no kind of moral implications of that, that the reality is that drug companies, that, that, that profit is directly related to what you're spending out of pocket mm -hmm. for something that doesn't need to cost that much and which those companies would not have a right to produce or an ability to produce exclusively without the government yeah. stepping in. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a really, a really important point because I know that we have perhaps not regular listeners to this show, but people out in the world who I think should be regular listeners to this show who struggle with what can feel like when we're not necessarily, you know, specific enough, but can feel like just a, a kind of almost like a jealous, a jealousy of wealth <laughs> or like yeah. sometimes get painted like, oh, we just wish we were rich or we're just trying sure, to pull yeah. other people down or something. But no, I think that what's really crucial for people to understand and what so many people in our generation understand is that there is this relationship, this, this tethering of poverty and other kinds of between excess and kind of a, like a lack of resources and that millionaires aren't just getting richer, billionaires aren't just getting richer, that it's coming at the expense of workers, or in this case, people who actually need to buy these pharmaceutical products. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another impulse people have is uh, is just, uh, well, I don't want to get the government involved, you know, no intervention. Like This seems like a real overstep. The government's going to now go in and dictate drug prices. It's like, yeah, you got to explain them. They already, we're already doing this. The government is already heavily involved right. because you want to see, you want to see how involved they are. Go try to take a drug that someone's selling for $10,000 a pill and go open up your own factory and start making it for a dollar a pill. And you will see the federal government and the state governments, they they will activate to close you down very quickly. So it's a question of how you want to allocate state power. Yeah. 
and not whether you want to use it or not. It's already being used. So yeah, okay. So that's one part of it. How to, part of how to bring down costs. Are there other ways that we haven't covered yet? Yeah. So I mean. The low-hanging fruit is administration, right? So if you think about it right now, we have this sort of money funnel (laughs) that uh, starts with uh, you and your employer, who of course takes it out of your wages, and the federal government to some degree. They're the one that pushed the money into the system. And then in the middle of that, we have these insurers. And the insurers are taking, uh, you know, depending on what estimates you want to use, you know, 10, 15% Obamacare cap, Obamacare capped it at 15%. That's for insurance company profits and for overhead. Mm. So, you know, you've, okay, so you put a dollar in after the insurance companies get their slice, there's only 85 cents left. That then eventually finds its way to a hospital or the doctor's office or whatever. Those doctors or those hospitals are paying 25% to administration themselves. Mm. They've got to hire all these billers. They've got to hire people to negotiate with insurance companies. They're paying 25 cents for that. Um, In Canada, it's only 13%. In Scotland, it's only 13%. Those are single payer type systems. So, you know, you've you've already lost about a quarter (laughs) of the dollar you put in, in paperwork, in bureaucracy. Um, and it's kind of amusing, of course, we think about the federal government as a slow, you know, a wasteful bureaucracy. Some people do. I don't personally. <laughs> and it's like this, this could not be more wasteful. Yeah. You know, Medicare costs the last estimate. They take 1.9 percent. So 1.9 cents <laughs> versus 15 cents uh, as they're administering the system. And you can you can get all that money back by restructuring the system and instead of funneling it through private insurers and then funneling it through all these administrative workers on on the provider side, that's making it a clean, efficient system and get rid of those redundancies. That saves you a huge chunk right there, um, allows you to cover 30 million people, et cetera. And then the last one is, is, is provider adjustments, provider cuts, depending on how you want to look at it. So under Medicare for All, as it was scored, both by uh, Mercatus, I looked at this, Urban Institute had a very similar um, estimate. They've, on this point, I won't go too deep into some of their (laughs) stuff, but they say that provider payments are going to be cut, you know, the amount that you give to a doctor per procedure by about 13%. Mm. That's, you know, overall. But remember, they're spending 25% on administration, and that's going to go down to 12%. So they should be able to make that up by not having to pay so much and carry so much administrative costs. So at the end of the day, you don't really, there's really not much of a cut to the actual nurses and doctors. It's really insurance companies, administration, and drug companies. Um, And I think sometimes people do find like, how can you actually, can you really, you really got to cut them back. And I think they forget partially that uh, even under Medicare for all, our health expenditures are going to be 20% higher than anywhere else in the world, you know, like there, cause the one thing people do, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, in Canada, they will maybe charge you $15 to go to the doctor. So <laughs> there you go. And it's like, I think if Canada wanted to spend as much as we're spending, they could get rid of that $15. Yeah. So any one of these systems wanted to spend 15, 16, 17% of GDP, which is what we're going to do even under Medicare for all. They could get rid of for sure co-payments, deductibles, and so on. So it's doable. It's definitely doable. 
Can you talk a little bit about what the costs of the current system are? Because there is a way that we say $32 trillion as though we're not spending an enormous amount on healthcare now. And, you know, anybody who's ever watched Bernie rally is all too familiar with the statistics about how we're spending twice as much as every other similarly situated country in the world without actually having Medicare for all. When we are trying to wrap our brains around that transition piece, how we go from the current system to a Medicare for all system. I think there's a lot of anxiety out there about that. So can you can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, you know, uh, I forget the guy who did the um, who did the Taiwanese transition. Taiwan has a single payer system. They didn't used to have one. Uh, one of the most famous healthcare economists, I wish I could recall his name. He was the one that uh, Stewart did that process. And the analogy he liked to use, and he said it was very persuasive to Taiwanese uh, parliamentarian. They were, it was just thinking about, you know, a, a hose or a funnel, right? It's right now we push money into the system through tons of different channels. There are thousands and thousands of health plans, hundreds of insurers. You've got Medicare, you've got Medicaid, you've got uh, veterans, you've got Indian health. Or you, you just, money is just coming through all these different paths. The idea is bring this all into one funnel, make it very simple, and that will allow you to save a lot of money. That's the basic gist of it. Um, you don't really have to change a whole lot about the providing part, hospitals, doctors. I mean, you might want to change that, but you don't really have to because they're still there. They know how to bill Medicare. They already bill Medicare for various things. What's really changing is not healthcare as normal people think about it. I go to the doctor's office. I talk to my nurse. It's, it's financing, it's financial firms, it's intermediaries, it's money changing hands, right? Yeah. Which, that can be fixed. That is immaterial. That's not a real, that's sort of a fake, fake production, right? Yeah. If, if what you do is you take money in and then you take 15 cents and you pass it on to the doctor, that, that can be fixed. That's not real production. And it would be good if we did fix it, both because we save money and because people who you know, spend their lives doing that and they could they could do better things that would actually be helpful to people. So. You make this sound all very reasonable. So I'm curious then what you make of folks like Joe Biden who say Bernie's plans, Medicare for all among them, are pie in the sky, who don't have a child care plan, who don't have any real climate change solution, um, who's rated, I believe uh, Joe Biden has a, an F Let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say he has a D from uh, from D's the, get degrees. <laughs> D's getting degrees. Well, we'll get a lot of degrees if we don't do something about <laughs> climate change That's in true. terms of the d- degree change in Celsius. So, what's your response to the idea that these things are pie in the sky? Well, so you have to figure out what someone means by that. If people want to say this is technically not doable, and that's why it's pie in the sky, mm-hmm. that's clearly untrue, right? You could absolutely put this together and make it work. Other countries have done it or done something very similar. If you want to say it's it's a political uh, haul, right? We got to persuade a lot of people who are currently not on board, especially elected officials, or we've got to replace them with people who are on board. Yeah, you know that's going to take a while, uh, or or maybe it'll happen quickly. I don't know, but yeah, there's a lot of political work that still has to be done. But frankly, what we saw under Obama is that um, you know Republicans are pretty much not going to go for anything. The idea that Joe Biden can pass his stuff uh, is maybe similarly pie in the sky, unless he can change the composition of the legislature significantly. So we're all you know, if we want to get anything done, 
we're all banking on trying to change who's in power and who makes votes. And we can speculate on over who can do that better, but that's where we are. So I remember actually that I saw that video and it reminded me when I saw it, I flashed back to uh, 2008 when Hillary Clinton was doing, was like mocking Barack Obama Mm. and saying, Barack Obama thinks, you know, the heavens will open and the skies (laughs) and so on. Even if you think that, uh, people don't want to be told that, uh, we can do nothing for you. Right. <laughs> At least try to say, I'm going to try to do something for you. Right. Don't just say, oh, no, good things can't happen. Get me in there. At least it's no longer Trump. Like, try right. something else, you know. Especially when you look at some of these exit polls, which have shown persistently that majorities of voters, even in states that have gone to Joe Biden, support Medicare for all. Almost every state in the exit poll, the Medicare for all. And, and they, they phrase it. In a negative way. It really depends on how you phrase it. When they went full in, do you want to eliminate private insurance for a government plan? Right. Like, like, you know, the, the boot at your throat kind of like way of describing it. And most people are like, yeah, I yeah find that. that's how bad it is. Yeah. And I, I just I, I cannot emphasize enough the political vulnerability and having to defend some real issues that emerged with the ACA. Right. Like, I don't want it's important to defend it to the extent that Trump is trying to repeal it without a plan to replace it because it did ensure 20 million more Americans and protects people with pre-existing conditions and all of these really important advancements. At the same time, it would be naive to ignore that it's vulnerable, that it's under attack right now, that it does not have the lasting power, it seems, as something like Social Security. Yeah. Medicare and Medicaid, because it doesn't have the universal buy-in and it doesn't have the kind of the rhetorical simplicity that those programs do. Right. You know, I think one thing that people miss a lot when they're thinking about designing new social programs or expanding programs is there's very much focused on, can we get this done right now? Oh, you should be happy with whatever you get, a kind of piecemeal thing. And they don't think about the kind of uh, iterative nature of social policy If you want to create a nice social democratic system where everyone can go and get get free childcare, gets free college, if you want to actually do that, that is a process. It takes time if you look at the countries that have done it. But to get that ball rolling, you need to do a benefit Mm. that everyone looks at and is like, this is great. And be like, you know, that thing, I can do that for childcare too. And then have them be like, sure, why not? I mean, it worked for this one. You pass these kludges that are still kind of leave people miserable, even if less miserable, and they're turned off from. So you're not going to get to where you want to go in the long run if if you just keep doing that. You should try to at least occasionally get a benefit in there that everyone's like, this is this is awesome. I really like this. As the good things Obamacare did, it still left people. We still got 30 million uninsured yeah. people. I mean, I was uninsured for like a month or two when my wife switched jobs because, uh, you know, just the process of that. People on Medicaid come off of Medicaid, like 30% of them come off of Medicaid, most of them into uninsurance within a year. Mm. So it's like, oh, that's great. You expand in Medicaid. And so at any point in time, you can be like, look, there's a ton more people on Medicaid. You follow those people over a course of a year, a third of them are off of Medicaid within a year. Mm. Most of them of that third uninsured, their income goes up, they fail to file a form, whatever. 
And it's like, it's nice that you got some extra Medicaid. You would have never had anything, but that's still a sucky experience. If you uh, were a customer of a company and you had that experience with them, you would not come back. And that's the kind of experience we keep delivering people with these half measures. I really appreciate that. Before I let you go, I I did want to ask you, because you do so much work talking about wealth gaps and the racial wealth gaps and gender wealth gaps and, and all of these kind of disparities that exist. And something that's always been interesting to me is how Bernie's whole spiel is about the 99% versus the 1%. But that hasn't necessarily been translated into a conversation about these various wealth disparities when it comes to various identity groups. And you made a point at one point about how we talk about the black-white wealth gap, but are a little bit short-sighted about the extent to which the black middle class has such a limited amount of black middle class, uh, black wealth overall, and the white middle class has a limited amount of white wealth overall. Can you unpack some of that? And and what I took from that is that kind of an approach that targets the 1% is necessary to close these gaps in any meaningful way. But I, I want to hear... Yeah. So we talk a lot about the gaps between racial groups or between people of different levels of education. We got, you know, cut them into those groups and they say, you know, how much does the average white family have versus the average black family? It's a lot more, right? How much does the average, you know, Latino family have? How much, you know, whatever, they go down the line. But what you could also do is you could take a group and you could say, all right, let's just take black people or let's just take white people and let's cut them up and say, what does the bottom 10% of black people look like versus what do the top 10% of black people look like? What are the bottom 10% of white people? You know, And when you do that, what you find is intra-group inequality within each group actually is almost the same across every group. So in every racial group, the top 10% owns about 75% of that group's wealth. Mm. Now, of course, if you're black, that 75% of black wealth is not nearly the same right. as 75% of white wealth. But you get that kind of stratification across the board in every single group. And I think that tells you that the story of wealth inequality is not purely a story of, well, some groups have you know, been discriminated against and so on. That's obviously a big part of it. But if that was the only story, then why is it in every group when you just look at that group, you have this massive stratification? There's something else going on. That's something else, you know, don't want to use the, the, the C word here, but, uh, you know, <laughs> that's the nature of a rigged economy. I guess I'll use the, the, way, Ber- the way Bernie wants to talk about it these days. Um, that's the nature of it. The other thing, I wrote a post a, a while ago where what I tried to do was we talk a lot about, so th- this is even a kind of mishmash of those two points. What if instead of asking, you know, how, you know, how much is the top 10% of black families own or what's the average black wealth versus the average white wealth? What if we just went into to the whole wealth distribution. And we said, let's look at the bottom 10% of all people. What does that bar look like? Yeah. What percent of the bottom 10% of the whole society are black? What percent of the bottom 30% are black or Latino or white? Break it up that way. Yeah. And what you find when you do that is the bottom half of society, which owns virtually no wealth, two or 3% of the national wealth, is about half non-white and about half white. Yeah. Once you get up, above the top 50%, especially as you get, it's all, you know, once you get up in that top 10%, it's all white. Yeah. And so to me, the lesson there, and this is what obviously Bernie's trying to do, 
let's get multiracial working class movement because every dollar that you move from the top 10% to the bottom half, even if it's, you know, sort of race blind in a sense, that's going to close the overall wealth gap and it's going to hugely close the racial wealth gap because that's just where people are located in the distribution. And as a political matter, I think you don't want to alienate the law, half the people in the bottom half are white. Yeah, this is such, I mean, I, I, we're both kind of like tiptoeing around this because this is like spicy content, yeah. but it's frustrating that it is spicy content. And it's something that I used to write about a lot when I was a journalist because it seemed obvious to me. I mean, you, you see this with, okay, so last night there's this conversation about what's going on with Black Southern voters, um, with this presumption that there's kind of this monolithic political attitude across Black people. Everyone's asking questions. How do you explain this, yada, yada, yada? And even though people love to say Black people aren't a monolith, there isn't a real understanding of the class differences that are happening within the Black community. Anyone who listened to the episode last week, uh, in which I I included a clip of an interview I did on the Karen Hunter show. Karen Hunter is an incredibly successful Black radio host at Sirius FM who I was talking to and who asked me, you know, I was telling her about how many of our supporters are work at Walmart, Walmart being the largest employer of Black Americans and, and the diversity of this working class coalition. And her question was, what about all the man- the Black managers at Walmart? What about all the the Black people that that Walmart has pushed into the middle class or upper middle class? And that orientation, it's not that those people don't matter, but the kind of, I think, persistent desire to focus on what is ultimately a much smaller and less vulnerable group of people is something that I think it's it's incumbent on us to push back on in some explicit way that's not happening right now. Because what you're hearing when you're talking to a lot of working class and low income Black people is, well, there's no point in me fighting for X, Y, and Z because poor white people are racist, all white people are racist, and they're never going to get on board with this program. And there's this extent to which we don't even see the coalition that exists. We don't see the fact that 50% of people who are poor and work on these government programs, et cetera, are in fact white. And it used to be that it was conservatives. It was Republicans who were saying everybody who's poor is black, welfare queens, et cetera, et cetera. And that was intended to suppress a coalition and suppress white interest, white working class interest in these programs. And now there's this perverse way in which you're seeing it coming from liberals. Yeah. Liberals are saying there's no there's no white working class. There's no point in talking about the white working class to mention white working class for some reasons that I understand in terms of how they recover disproportionately. But to even mention the white working class is to somehow concede that you are invested in the well-being of poor people of color as well. And a kind of refusal to see that those interests could ever overlap and that a coalition could ever be put together. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, in the 80s and 90s, the right put a lot of effort into acting as if social programs only benefited people of color in order to draw support away from them. And now we sort of uh, weirdly, a lot of liberals want to now suggest the the same thing. thing. Yeah. Oh, this is uh, to help people of color. And they do help people. They do. No doubt about it. Disproportionately. But they help a lot of white people as well. And if you think there are a lot of racist white people in the country, and that's probably a good, reasonable thought to have. Sure. Making it the belief broadly in society that these programs only help 
non-white people. That's not a good, that's not a good strategy. Yeah, you, you, you know? both ways. I think I wrote this once in a piece. I said, if we all acknowledge that we live in a society where we have to say Black Lives Matter because people don't think they do, then what are you gaining by branding social programs as exclusively the province of Black lives or benefiting Black lives? And it's perverse. It's sick. I don't want to have to kind of say that out loud. Right. I wish we lived in a world where in liberal America, New York and California, you you can draw support for something by saying this helps black people. Sure, you, can, yeah. pr- you can use the the kind of white guilt of liberals to say, hey, don't you want to help your fellow man who has been historically marginalized? But America is big. And I don't know that there are enough kind of guilty white liberals or that we want to fuel a, a social movement on white guilt as opposed to something more akin to solidarity. Solidarity, yes. That's what you need. Um and I think, you know, it's useful to distinguish between people who want to make the point that, hey, non-white groups, people of color, they're getting, they're, their voices are not being listened to, they're being underrepresented, they're getting short shrift, and so on and so forth. And then, but to not then take the next step and be like, and the things we're advocating to fix this, the things we're advocating to fix the criminal justice system or whatever, those are only for black people or Latino people. Yeah. It's like, no, I mean, think about my own family. I grew up poor white in Texas and I could tell you a lot of my uh, friends and family uh, have experiences in jail and prison. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's you know, obviously heavily disproportionately non-white, but it's not exclusively that. And so it's a tough, tough balance to strike. But yeah. I think some people go too far and want to suggest that these things only help certain groups. And th- that's not useful. We want to build, bring everyone in, especially people who are affected, working class, multiracial gay straight you know across the board like bernie says that's what we want to do and sometimes i feel like messaging and and honestly this is kind of elite messaging yeah and go back to the establishment in dc yeah they like to use this sort of messaging to get money from uh foundations Mm -hmm. (laughs) high net worth individuals and as a as a bit of a cudgel against the left yeah to say oh well if you keep going back to saying we're going to help the entire working class without name dropping this and that and being very specific about you know fronting this and that um you're actually less committed to racial justice than we are which is just ridiculous i do want to say that i think that there is some legitimate there's a, a legitimate like sliver to the pushback that we get when we say this, talk about the seat, when we talk about class in the way that we're talking about it now, which is that historically an effort to appeal to white working class or poor Americans has come at the expense of black and brown and other people of color. Right. And so they're the, including among Democrats who have said, well, let's compromise with Republicans. Let's build a coalition by doing more of what the Republicans want. Let's cut Social Security. Sure. You know, let's write the Joe Biden crime bill. Let's let's do these kinds of things. But that is what you do. That's what you're kind of forced to do if you're the only if you're unwilling to appeal to white people via class. Yeah. If you are a corporate candidate who doesn't have the option just to offer white people, poor white people, working class people, what they actually want, which overlaps substantially with what working class people of color want, then you are forced into a kind of a a racist 
form of politics that is is a zero sum game and put and pits those groups against each other. Yeah. But if you do have a a genuine economic agenda that does have broad working class appeal, then you don't you needn't presume that just because a white working class person is attracted to a program that it's coming at the expense of people of color or other yeah, marginalized yeah. groups. Yeah, if you want to put together a majoritarian coalition, you're either going to bring them in by appealing to their worst instincts like uh, Trump did or right. like Bill Clinton did, frankly. Mm. Sister Soldier standing in front of all those prisoners, right. welfare cuts. All, um, presiding over the execution of um, oh, yeah, the mentally yeah. handicapped man. Yeah, you can do that. All right, we figured it out. We've we've cracked the nut. Or you can try to bring them into coalition based on, on class. That'll also add up and get you the numbers. Yeah. And so it's one or the other. This middle path where you, what liberals have been doing, I don't know how you get the majority there. Yeah. So. Well, I really appreciate that. I, I'm sorry to take you on this lark, but um, can you tell us where to find People's Policy Project, your wonderful podcast yeah. with your wife? Oh, yeah. Peoplespolicyproject.org. You can see how to donate on the sidebar if you want to do that. If you go to uh, patreon.com slash thebrunigs, that's my podcast. It's also on iTunes, The Brunigs. But that's only for free episodes. So you definitely want to sign up to get the premium episodes. Patreon.com slash The Brunics. It's great. I love you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks. That's it for this week. Hear the Burn is produced by Ben Dalton and Christopher Moore. Let us know what you think at heartheburn at berniesanders.com or else take to Twitter with the hashtag heartheburn. I love to read your feedback on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get these episodes. So be sure to rate, review, or like us whenever you get a chance. Till next week, 